This episode was recorded in Garyward, home to the Jarwaring and Jardwajali people. I pay my respects to them and this sacred land. I've gone from actively fighting as a sniper in the Special Forces, wanting to go over to Afghanistan and wanting to shoot at people, to genuinely wanting everybody on planet Earth to prosper and wanting the best and wanting to share love. People who come here usually are searching, whether they know or not, they're searching. How do we find true meaning and connection in life? I'm on a quest to meet people who have found connection and meaning in their life. People who make time for something that has value and purpose or makes them feel joyful and alive. I'm convinced that through meeting these people, I'll find one thing I can be doing to bring more connection and meaning into my life. So I quit my job, bought a pop-up camping trailer, and I'm heading off on a journey around Australia to see what other people are doing. My name is Kai, and I'm on a journey towards connection. North of Warrnambool, nestled in the rugged Grampians National Park, beneath a spectacular starry sky, is Kailash Ashram, where I spend a night learning to meditate with David, Rajni, and their baby Tara. I have tried meditating before, but I had never had a sound meditation, and it really blew my mind. Yeah, let's do this thing, hey? So we've got little baby Tara with us. She's nine months old and she's no less than a miracle. She'll make some little sound and hopefully it doesn't get too much. I'm David Wegman. I suppose I'm the manager of Kailash Ashram and the co-founder with my lovely wife, Rajni. And I'm Rajni, the other manager of the ashram and the co-founder of Helashan Himalayan Meditation in Australia. And the truth would be more, we, we poured our heart here and it's all about that connection soul to soul. I don't walk saying I'm the manager of the ashram. It doesn't even occur to me. But yes, my heart is beating here. <laughs> We've been doing a lot here and this is home for us. Our journey here is pretty epic and what we are here and who and why this has all transpired is being brought increasingly to my attention that there are mysterious forces in this universe that weave our paths together. Wartook is the home of kangaroos and mountain views is the tourist slogan for the uh, 300 person population. Most of the cliffs that you see, the prominent cliff line is sandstone. That's why you get these striking orange cliffs, quite iconic Grampians cliffs. And yeah, they go really beautiful pink and blue hues depending on the, the time of the day. In five years out here, the mountains have never been the same twice. We're fortunate enough that we've got some very old trees on the property. Down near our practice space, there's a couple that are quite significant and they could be, you know, up to five to 700 years old. And we've felt a grandmother and a grandfather tree and some other significant trees that carry a particular energy. And these are sorts of things that six years ago when I was still in the army, seven years ago, I wouldn't, the word energy kind of scared me away. In that tree, it's older than any one human's life. Yeah, it's been 
nice connecting to the sacredness of the landscape here. Can we go back a step? Can I just ask, first of all, what is an ashram? Can you explain what that is? Ashram is a Sanskrit word which means to toil or work. So ashram means the place where you toil or work. And the work that is referred to is the the inner work of the spiritual practices. So in the yogic and meditation traditions and lineages, an ashram is a place of spiritual hermitage for both the impartation of specific spiritual practice and also for the cultivation of those practices. So typically a guru will reside inside of an ashram and offer instruction and guidance and also offer the space for people to embark upon an introspective and introversive journey of engaging in those spiritual practices. What the exact spiritual practices are depend on the lineage and the tradition. We follow a living Himalayan meditation master and take our guidance and direction from him. The ashrams that he runs in India are sorts of dozens, hundreds of people in permanent residence and with influx capacity of thousands for events here. It's the three of us. (laughs) So an ashram typically will involve something of a a sustainable community. We only recently in in the end of um, 2021 received our meditation master's blessings to operate as an official ashram. Prior to that, we were a bit of a retreat center, a sacred space, a community, a venue hire, an Airbnb. We did kind of everything for everyone. Um, But to become an ashram for us meant to say no to a lot of um, distractions from that core spiritual practice that we engage in and share with people, um, whether on small scale one-on-one situations or on larger programmed retreats. We're still kind of over the last few months have been finding our feet with what is feasible inside of the Australian culture, like how best to operate as an ashram. At the moment, we run retreats monthly and, you know, with the vision that as we build a community that we will be able to engage in more of a full-time operation. We did try that and the ashram will be a place for people who are a part of this tradition to come and engage in their practice in an unsupervised manner. But if there's, say, people like yourself who haven't been introduced to the core practices, the best way for someone else to come in would be through a programmed activity or retreat to be shared that practice so that when you do come back on your own terms that you're kind of familiar with the do's and the don'ts of the space and and how it kind of operates. And by do's and don'ts, David is pointing out the... The invitation is for people to come as a soul. And, you know, let, let, you can leave home who you think you are, whether it's about the, the gender, the culture, the agendas, anything. It's a beautiful space to help you go beyond and experience soul consciousness. So we treat everyone the same way. And what we've experienced is that when groups of people come together with that intentionality to put aside the um, mundane and worldly affairs, it gives time and space for the, the deeper layers to surface. So maybe unconscious patterns that are calling to be ridded, 
something like that. So it's not easy work. It's like, hey, all that busyness you're dealing with out in the outside world, that's a distraction. You come to an ashram and you think, oh, it's going to be great. It's all beautiful. I'm going to do these great practices. I'm going to feel so great. And it's like, yeah, maybe for a few days and then stay a few more days. And it's like, what's really going on? We've just witnessed time and time again, people have come for a reason and they will not leave until the thing that was meant to come out comes out and then and once that pops once that little aha moment occurs once the revelation once the catharsis happens then there's this oh I don't know what brought me here but I got what I was I got what I needed not what I wanted and now I can go and and integrate that experience in my life that's where the ashram itself becomes the place for that work instead of like a retreat like as in running away from something and not many people in Australia understand that you know we we chase positive experience but work means confronting those things that maybe we didn't want to have to look at the unflattering reflections looking yourself in the mirror and dealing with your shit is is someone who's actually useful in a family situation or in society or in your job or wherever you are it can be beyond the pretty mountains and the nice garden and the beautiful lodge it's deep deep healing that's happened one thing i i noticed when people come here and they have no clue what an ashram is I do ask them the question, so what do you think an ashram is? And have you got any expectation? And funny enough, the, the practice is based on surrender and no expectation. So I ask this question just to see where they're at. And some people are, it's all about love. So in that one sentence, usually it gives everything away. The person is scared of staying alone, want to be loved. Some people have much resentment. They don't know about it and they want to be the one who talk about love. And it happened to me in India, all about love. And I, and I cried and cried and vomited <laughs> everything that I had to get rid of. Usually I smile because I'm not here to tell them, but it helped me to understand where the person is. And usually everything happens by itself through the practice and the time in nature and the activity we run here. Usually it comes out toward the end where they're like, actually, and I'm not so loving right now. And I have to get rid of this. And the silence and the space give rise to whatever you don't want sometimes. So people have mixed experience as well. You kind of answered it then why people come, but what sort of people come usually? People who come here usually are searching whether they know or not. They're searching. Usually it's an excuse. I need my time. I need to chill. And when I, when I hear that, I smile and I'm like, come and chill <laughs> because I've been there as well. We, we know there's something beyond. We know it's about something else, but we don't know what. And our answer would be very simple with, with regard to connecting with their higher self, their soul. We meet people who are yearning for the beyond. And that's a realm that you will not touch unless there's guidance and devotion ultimately, as in some sense of, okay, I am the student, (laughs) but that's what Rajni and I have ourselves welcomed into our life because we reached a point on our own spiritual journey and in our own spiritual practices where we realized that we were full of shit and that we needed help, (laughs) that we couldn't do it. And that little moment of humility of going, okay, right, I I don't know how to do this. Many of our master uh, Swamiji's teachings are 
designed around empowering you to have that devotional relationship to your own soul. In the West, we're kind of very divorced from that notion of of the soul. It's a very material existence we live. So often the people, whether they're young men through to old women and everything in between, we've had the full spectrum of people and bodies, but the yearning inside has been for that formless connection to the soul. For us, it's more people who have self-nominated and decided to go, okay, I'm going to go forth and work upon myself or I want to get to the bottom of why I'm not happy. How did you first discover this? And what was it that you were looking for? Back in 2007, I had my baby in November 2006 and I was still breastfeeding and I was kind of pushed to go back to work because we needed money. It was a very tough decision for me because I was, it was lumped on me somehow or I was made feel guilty that I was staying at home even though I was still looking after baby. I found a, a job and my parents looked after my, my son. And it's me going back to work in a job that I do not like, which is in accounting. My breast full of milk and getting harder and harder because no one is sucking anymore. And I remember that was the first day at, at work in the UK. And the first thing that came to me is I'm gonna lose it, I need meditation. So I just said that inside and I went on Google and started searching meditation. My very first experience of meditation, I went into a deep meditation of two hours. It was a very good experience. So I continued with the practice and three months later, I decided to open a center and share the meditation with people. We had a good group that started like I couldn't leave the practice and I realized it's not so much about the 30 minutes, right? It's outside the 30 minutes because life will throw you all sort of things and you have to learn to be able to surrender and negotiate what, what comes to you. And surrender was the biggest tool for me, basically. And that's how it's been like 15 years now. Google played a part, <laughs> similar theme to Rajni, emergent AI. I actually had practiced Hatha yoga for a good 12 years uh, before I meditated. And, and that was my little kind of out of left field thing that I kept doing right through my army career. And it just made me feel good. I had a kind of yearning. I'd, after four deployments to Afghanistan, a seven year relationship broke up. I partied, I drank, I, I did all the things that were repressed out of me in an unhappy relationship over seven years and things started getting worse and worse and worse and worse. My own inner state got pretty bad and, and I felt myself losing control and I was educated, had an elite job, was high performing, was smart and I'm fit, training CrossFit six days a week and I'm like losing control. I'm like drinking myself to an early grave, but I didn't believe in anything. <laughs> like I hit the end of the road of atheism for me or I exhausted something, some, some place inside of me. I just couldn't, there was no more traction. The wheels were spinning. You know, a friend held space for me and reflected some stuff. The idea that I had invested too much time in my career and studying architecture and doing army and all these things that, well, I'd already invested, you know, the better part of 13 years that I was, I couldn't possibly let those things go. They're too prestigious. I was too good at them to stop them. And I, I remember saying, I was, oh, society's going to judge me. And my friend said, society's going to judge you. I'm like, yeah, there's all this societal expectation. And she was like, 
society's expectation and it was just like oh shit it's it's my expectation of myself and so little bit by little bit as I realized that I had all of this self-imposed pressure that was just unconscious I went through like a spiritual awakening and I thought I'd be this kind of conscious soldier (laughs) I was like how far can I push the paradox before things really go nuts and we got a long weekend off and I thought I'm gonna learn to meditate and I put into Google the Learn to Meditate Perth and there was only one retreat and it looked super not my cup of tea. It was like butterflies and soul to soul and I'm like, oh, yuck, you know. Knowing me back then and what I was yearning for was like a Buddhist monk with a stick, you know, and it's like if I slouched, I wanted them to hit me, you know. I wanted punishment. I wanted it to be kind of this big ordeal. And when I showed up on that retreat, wasn't it a really kind of lush retreat center? It was just like some school camp. And I'm like, what is this stuff? This is nonsense. What I was doing was projecting all of my shit onto this practice and this community. And the work had already begun. That was the hook. That was the little flag to get my attention. Because if it had given me what I wanted, it just would have kept indulging all of those parts of my personality that needed the work. So I got in there and the people were kind of like very, the fact that I was a special forces sniper and I'm over there like with the army and then they're all like just kind of loving beautiful souls and it's all like very PC and very correct and nice and I'm like I'm like a fish out of water here but like I can't fault them and there's something there's something in this there was like an inner knowing that I was cut out for more than what I was doing with myself all I did was sit down and do what I was shown three weeks later like my life exploded and I'm out of the army for the first time in 13 years going holy moly where do I go next I've gone from actively fighting as a sniper in the special forces wanting to go over to Afghanistan and wanting to shoot at people to genuinely wanting everybody on planet earth to and wanting the best and wanting to share love. Like if I've gone from that in five years, there's something in this. It's not just some gimmick. It cut me out of the army three weeks after I started doing it. And I didn't have any like profound meditational experiences. I didn't go into like some colorful dream psychedelic kind of vision. I just sat down and realized how batshit crazy I was and how busy my mind was. But what life threw me in that three weeks was a challenge. And I passed a test and I had to let go of a relationship that wasn't serving me. And then because I let go of a relationship, that I thought was everything at that time. I thought, my God, I need to get myself sorted out. This army thing is not good for me. And instinctively, I went and just put in my discharge. And if I was astute and watched myself a little bit more closely, every time I was driving into work for the army for two years, I would get tension and nausea in the stomach, but I would suppress it down and, and push it down. And I was doing a violence to myself by imposing So when you create the space for this element, this natural illumination of surrender to emerge and just be in your life, you become aware when you are imposing. I fought against alcohol for like five years. It was like a beast that I was trying to wrestle. Started the meditation and within a couple of months, without really trying anymore, it just fell away. Because actually the drinking was a symptom The drinking was to mask some unconscious anxiety. Anxiety was caught with a tension 
So the surrender just released tension in the body. It released tension in the mind and the anxiety started going and then the drinking started going. So I actually got the thing at the roots instead of being fixated upon the appearance of what I thought the problem was. So then what did the army or your army mates think of you doing meditation and yoga if they knew? And then also what did your family think when you ditched the army and decided to come to Wartook? The army was super supportive the whole way through with regards to the yoga because I was still, I was at a very much at a physical level with my practice of yoga. So I was kind of always a little bit of an oddball in the army you know, to the point I even shared some yoga with people in the army and ran them through some some basic stuff that I knew. There was the kind of knowledge that I was into some weird stuff. I was always on the fringe. I wasn't your straight-laced kind of guy ever, I don't think. So I think there was a couple of year period there where I was doing a lot of expansive, deep work and finding these new frontiers inside of myself and challenging the way that I was seeing the world and that that was like, oh, has David lost the plot. When Rajni moved here in, so we did long distance for a year and then Rajni moved here, the effect of, of seeing me genuinely happy for the first time in my life has brought them around to being happy for me and even curious enough for me to share meditation with my parents who I taught to meditate. How did you two meet? It was an eight-day workshop. It was me back in 2018, rocking my single parenting thing. I just was happy being a single mom. I learned to love myself and I, I learned to be uh, self-assured and self-reliant. And it was very important for me to be able to see myself as a person who could rock it alone. So I wasn't searching for anyone. But deep in my heart, I knew there was something happening in parallel. There was someone somewhere. And because I believe in soul connection, I felt like, oh, I'm going to surrender that one. I'm not going to look for it. If I'm dressing up, it's for myself. And I went to India. Before going to India, I have to explain that my life changed. I lost my job. So they, they told us that within one year, they will transfer everything to Hungary. So... You lose your job with a good payout. So they gave you the time to just find something else, basically. My son started talking about spending more time with his dad, which was really painful for me because I thought there was something wrong with me. Now, when I look back, he, he needed that time with his dad. And I lost my best friend in a motorcycle accident. He was an anchor in my life somehow. And losing that one day before going to India was really tough for me. I went back home after the, the news and I saw my mom so excited. I was actually going for that retreat for my mom. She was so excited for us traveling together and she had her bag all prepared and I could not say anything. I just swallowed my tears and this was me going to India, crying on the flight. And when I landed, I remember I was not even trying anything. I was all probably swollen from the crying. And, and I remember she said something. She said, brush your hair. What's happening to you? And I'm like, as if I'm going to meet someone. I said something like that. Landed. And then when we come out of the immigration, I just said, oh, he's here. And my mom looked at me and she said, what? You just said, he's here. Who are you talking about? And I'm like, I don't know. 
but I just said that. And there was this feeling of something is going to happen, but I don't know what. So I meet all my friends and one of the friends knew what, what had happened. So she gave me a hug. I had let some tears and the next person I was saying hello to was David. And then during eight days, we just connected and connected and it became so strong that all my friends who wanted to spend time with me saw me in a kind of bubble. Everyone describes the same thing. You were in such a bubble that you couldn't see us. I guess the connection was triggering, very triggering for me. It triggered my fear of being connected so strongly to someone again because I had just lost my best friend and I went through the, the divorce and I have issues with trust. And I was like, I'm not ready for that. But I couldn't fight it. So I'm the first one who actually, I remember, hold his hand saying, I can feel the connection, but I don't know what to do with it. And I'm scared. And I started crying. Because the truth is, I was bloody scared. Because I had built this super persona of the single mom rocking it. And I was all good. And I didn't need anyone. And I didn't want to waste time with anyone, basically. And then I meet him who just turned my whole world. It was again about surrender. I had to surrender who I thought I was because I was good to go. And we, we didn't stop talking after India. Can you run me through what a day of your practice looks like? So how is it different to somebody who doesn't practice? What do you physically, tangibly do? This practice is about waking up, recognizing that you were never actually asleep for a start. Like this process brings you into alignment with what was inside you and what has always been inside you. There's no thing to do. There's no technique to grasp at. It's the anti-technique. So when you acknowledge the, the self, consciousness perhaps, as sacred, so it's the most important thing, and pure that it can hold opposites and you rest for a moment, for 30 minutes, with that knowledge that that's what you are. You are not your left hand. You are not your trauma. You are not your story. You're not your role. You're not your status or your, your, your paycheck or, or what people told you you were, that you are actually something beyond that. And you begin to allow yourself to be in that state every single day, even just for 30 minutes. And out of 30 minutes, it might be 29 and a half minutes of garbage, nonsense thoughts, thinking about taking the rubbish out, what's for dinner? Ah, oh, shit, I was an asshole to that person. I'm not happy with that. Oh, what have I got to do tomorrow? You might get 30 seconds. You might get 30 milliseconds of oh, that release, that surrender there. That is what we're cultivating. Little bit by little bit, as you get a taste for what that feels like inside of you, the practice that we share is a great gateway into a devotional relationship with your soul. For 30 minutes every day, I'm going to sit down. Doesn't matter if it's a good meditation or a bad meditation. I'm giving this time away. I'm donating this time without expectation to some inner higher authority that I don't even really know what it is, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to show up. I'm going to actually embody that practice. And for the people that have actually stuck with it and persisted with the practice, independent of any belief in a, a living master, or just the practice alone is empowered enough to create change. In my very limited 
attempts at meditating. I think I always thought it was too hard and I was doing it wrong. And I thought it's hard work is what I assumed meditation would be. But hearing you, you're making it sound almost the opposite. It's not hard work. It's simple. Show up. That piece of you that is calling hard work, that's the thing that actually gets worked upon. Oh, don't get me wrong. I've sat through some meditations and I'm like, is the clock running in reverse? What the hell? You know, and I've sat there and also had supreme bliss. Not as much as I'd like. Oh, there I go. I've got my own attachment. I've got my own desires still. But the pressure that you put upon yourself when you show up to sit. I used to get annoyed at myself in my attempts at meditation because as soon as I have a thought, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. And it became this battle and this lecture and I'd leave just being like, oh, my brain's too busy. I can't do this. And you said it already. Doing. It's not in the doing. So we call it meditation. It's actually a word that you cannot translate, which is dian. And dian is not about focusing. It's not about doing. It's sitting for meditation to happen. So the meditation happened to you. And that's why it can be frustrating for people. It's because you are so used to be doing something and to take the credit for. Here it's the opposite. It's like you sit and you bow down to something bigger because you know you, you don't have all the answers and you don't do anything. Everyone has a different experience and that's why we can't really compare. Some people have vision, some people... For me, it's a deep sound where I'm like, ah, oh, I feel so good. Thank you. No thought, no, no nothing. We talk so much about the present moment and empty. And what is empty is scary for us. It's very scary. And here, basically, you sit empty and you let it happen to you. And that's why there is this idea of no expectation as well, because by doing you get, and here you don't know what you're going to get. And there are some meditation that were like beautiful, where I saw some amazing stuff and the next day you wait for that to happen again and boom, nothing happened. So everything is here to work out the eye, the ego. When that thirst starts getting quenched, when you begin to drink from a different bottle and you go, oh, that's what I was yearning for. You know, you can imagine a, a weary traveler in the desert finally coming across an oasis or a, a bottle of water. You know, nothing will quench that thirst like water. Like you could give them Coca-Cola, you could give them juice, but when you are dehydrated, you need water. And when the culture is dehydrated from the sacred, the only thing that will quench that thirst is the inner experience. And that's what the meditation is. It's a technology to elicit the inner experience of communion and connection with the sacred. So when it gets bandied around as like a kind of a health modality, it's like, yeah, well, if you want to use it that way, you can, but you know, it's actually probably going to cut something a lot, or like scratch something a lot deeper if you'll let it. On the way here, the thought that was occupying my mind was, well, how will I know if it's working? Like, how do I know? What does it feel like? What is that feeling of meditation? I think the first experience that many people report is, I just felt good. And that's the most important thing because you're connecting with your soul. How will you know the meditation's working? I'm not going to pop up inside your head and go, good job. You'll know because you feel good. Well, if you don't, don't do it. <laughs> you know? I started by asking you what it was that you were looking for. What was it that you found? What I found is 
my home, myself, in such a way that I could look at my face on, in the mirror and say, yeah, I like what I see. And it's not about the look at all. That mirror always gave me the reflection of what are you doing to yourself, girl? And I would cry after that because each time I could hear that, that voice, finally found a way to be able to connect with that voice more and more. So people call it, you know, the little voice, gut feeling, intuition, whatever. For me, that's what I found, the, the soul. And it's home. Is there anything else that you both or either of you wanted to say? Is there anything that you think the world needs to know? Not that the whole world's going to listen to this podcast, but you know what I mean. For me, I would say what I said to my son. If you want to stand tall in life, get on your knee and bow down to what's bigger. There's something always bigger. And being that act of being able to bow down to something bigger... And the biggest thing is inside us. So that ability to adapt, surrender, is the one, is the one who will unlock every, every part of your life. That's my experience. We're down the back of the Kailash property, going into a yurt. Yeah, it's cold. But actually, the yurt looks quite warm and inviting. It's mostly bare. There's some yoga mats, there's some cushions, drums, a couple of artworks. It's really dimly lit by candles and it has a really, like, a nice woody smell. Um, and, like, inside the yurt, not just the, the smell of the Australian bush around us. But David's going to take me through a two meditations now, sitting meditation and a sound meditation. Mostly I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to fall asleep in the meditation. When I've tried meditating in the past, that's what usually ended up happening. And now I am more pregnant and I had a long drive today. We stayed up late chatting and, yeah, I'm just really tired. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to keep myself awake. I might have to pinch myself when he's not looking. So, yeah, fingers crossed I don't fall asleep, but we'll see what happens. There isn't anywhere else to be. You don't need to go anywhere. For that meditation, wherever you find yourself, it's not like, oh, look, I wish I was in X place where it was a little bit more quiet or I wish I, wish I could sit with less effort. I wish that my body was able to sit without pain. All of those are uh, disturbances of the mind that will pull you away from fully accepting where you are, how you are, inside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And if how you are is a little bit nauseous, a bit full from dinner, a little bit confused and bewildered of what these crazy people in the mountains are saying, that's how you are. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially about still allowing those thoughts and allowing those sensations, you're just not fighting them. You don't fight anything. And you're not pushing them away either, you're not like... No, the second... away thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like okay. if you wrestle with a pig, yeah. Don't complain that you're going to get covered in shit, you know? Yeah. And that's what it's like with the thoughts. You want to wrestle with them, what will it create? More thoughts. Routine can be your friend with the meditation, i.e. like they say the most auspicious times are an hour and a half before sunrise and before sunset. Mm -hmm. At that transition points in the day, that's really good. Individual practice in the morning, 
nothing beats it because everything's still, yeah. the energy's still before sunrise. But, yeah. you know, if you want to follow the sunrise, you can. If you want to just get habitual going, okay, I'm doing morning meditations, that's my spot. Yeah. A physical space is also really quite important to, like a place to go to where it's your meditation spot. You don't need to have like a full-on setup yurt. or a yurt or anything crazy like that. Maybe if you want to share meditation with other people, a yurt might be useful. Yeah. Look, yes, you can meditate anywhere. It's for those mornings where it's rough and all you can do is drag yourself mm. to your little spot. Don't even worry about meditating. Just get yourself to the spot where you normally meditate. Because of the practice, what you will do, the memory of that practice will live inside you and it will live inside of that space. 45 days, 30 minutes every day. It's 23 hours, 30 minutes over the next month and a half that you are donating. The benefit of being a little bit hardline with 30 minutes in the beginning is that the mind little opening it'll get its crowbar and it'll start like leveraging you mm -hmm. and before you know it you're kind of budged off and it's like oh no 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 three mindful breaths is good for me yeah. it's like yeah bullshit try 30 minutes and see how you feel you'll be like painfully going through 26 27 minutes and then maybe something happens in the 28th or the 29th minute and you go oh i'm 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 glad that i i sat through that so that's been my experience that it's worth going through don't set an alarm yeah that's horrible yeah don't do that to yourself cool. that's a lot let's sit after this we'll reorient and just get straight set up for sound meditation and then i'll, I'll play for a little bit and mm -hmm. that'll be a nice embodied experience of and so are we doing 30 minutes now we will now because i can sense a little bit of fear that i'm like we're going to do the thing well we can do 30 minutes and it'll be good to feel at least one full sit you can spend the first few moments when you find your seat tending to the body and allowing yourself to sit with ease but also with an alertness many in this tradition will place their backs of their hands on their knee so this will put the palms face upright and this is a a small mudra of a small gesture towards surrendering right if someone wanted to come and take something out of your hand they could and if someone wanted to leave you a gift similarly they could taking the right hand and placing the palm on the top of the head you can gently press in three clockwise circles so this position on the top of your head is like a gentle focal point for you to bring your attention back to at any stage that you need to recommence the process of surrendering. If you wish to recite internally after me the soul mantra, I am a holy soul, I am a pure soul, I am a holy soul, I am a pure soul. I am a holy soul, I am a pure soul.
Apart from the pins and needles in both legs, I really enjoyed the 30-minute sitting meditation with David. It honestly felt like we're only meditating for about 10 minutes. Even David described our meditation together as a lovely energy. And, most importantly, I didn't fall asleep. I didn't know what I was in for with the sound meditation. As David set up many metal bowls of various sizes around me, I lay on the wooden floor under a thick grey blanket, not having a clue what to expect. As I found out, a sound meditation is the use of specific instruments, like bowls and gongs, to create sonic vibrations that felt like it was running through my whole body. It was a powerful, almost out-of-body experience, like I'd had multiple hits of nitrous oxide. It was surreal and intense. I'm getting set up to play some sound. Cool. Have you ever sat through or, or participated or received a sound meditation before? No, I don't even know what it is. Let's go on a journey then. How are you? Good, how you doing? So, what's happening? Well, I thought I'd call you. Do you remember the meditation retreat that we went on? Yep. Yeah, how how old was I? About 16. All I remember is forgetting to bring my suitcase, (laughs) I don't know how, (laughs) and then having to wear your undies because it was like a 10-day silent, of a passion or a silent retreat. Did you ever give them back to me? (laughs) <laughs> I'm still wearing them right now. <laughs> At least they're getting plenty of use. That's the main thing. Um, what was your impression of the meditation retreat? 
I really enjoyed it. I thought, I think that sort of thing is really good. You know, you get away and you just get a little bit introspective, you know, and a lot of people sort of look at it as a, you know, the be all end all answer to things. And I, I sort of don't say it like that. I found it was very relaxing and very enjoyable. And have you ever meditated since? Yeah, I do it regularly. Do you? Yeah, I quite often do it when I'm driving. I find it very, you know, you sort of breathe in a special sort of a way mm. and it, you, you get your concentration going. And even when you're exercising, I find if I do that, like I do a set thing with the way I breathe and it gets you concentrating just on your breathing and on nothing else, it sort of takes your mind away from it. And do you think yeah. you started doing that since the meditation retreat we went on way back no, then? No, I think I, I think I used to do it beforehand. I remember once I did a course on meditation, you know, one of those night courses. And it really just gets back to, you know, at some stage you just got to take stock. Mm. You know, you've got to wind back a little bit. I, I didn't know that you meditated. I didn't know you did a meditation course or... Yeah, a long time ago. And it helps quite a lot when I'm trying to sleep too, I do the same thing. One of the people I met for the podcast, I went and actually stayed at their meditation ashram. David took me through two types of meditation. So one sitting meditation and then one sound meditation. Have you ever heard of a sound meditation? No. Is that where they'll play a certain sort of music or running water or whatever and you've got to concentrate on it? Yeah, but it was through a lot of like vibrations. So I don't know if you've seen those bowls. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of run a thing around it and you get a like a little echoing ring from it. And so he had about 10 on the floor and a gong yeah. and make them the sound on one bowl and then move to the next while the others reverberating in the whole room because we're in a yurt. So it was circular. Yeah. So the sound was like ricocheting off all of the walls. It was a really intense experience. Like it, yeah. it kind of felt like I was high. Um, <laughs> though you're my father, so I won't tell you that I know anything about okay. that. No. But it was incredible. Yeah. I'd like to try it. I think it'd be good fun, but the impression I get is it's all about trying to distract ourselves from the everyday. Yeah, or trying to remove from distractions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, David said that I should try it every day for 45 days, so he does it for half yep. an hour a day, and he yep. said... Even if you just show up, you just sit there for half an hour and when he's like, if it's not for you, don't do it any longer. But I think I'm going to give it a go. Have you started yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did you see him? Not long ago. <laughs> <laughs> You're not off to a good start, are you? <laughs> no, but in my defence, it's it's about one degree in my camper every morning because I definitely do it in the morning. I don't know. I was going to wait till I get home and it's warmer, but maybe I should start tomorrow. You know, you see people doing it sometimes cross-legged, but sometimes even sitting on a chair. Yeah. You sort of put your hands on your knees and then you just concentrate. You, you can see the breath coming in through the nose and you can actually watch it going down your throat and then breathing back out again. It's quite funny, like if you've got a like a sore knee or something, you can actually breathe in deeply and you concentrate on the knee and it feels like the breath's going to that part. Try it. I was just going to say, I can't believe we've never had this conversation before. <laughs> I didn't know There's any of this about you. we haven't had. Yeah, I think all of those sorts of things, I think everybody should do it to some degree. But, you know, it's funny, you talk to people and it's quite funny how you can, whether they're, they're working or their lives, and you just realise that for the last 40 years they've done absolutely zero. You know, they go to work and they come home or they drink too much or watch TV. But you mm -hmm. just think that for a long time a lot of people never look outside their own little circle sort of thing, mm -hmm. their own little globe. And that's probably a lot of the world's like that. Well, that's really what my podcast is about, finding people who do deliberately bring something into their life that brings 
you know, more meaning and more connection so that it's not just about getting up, going to work, coming home, watching TV, going to bed. It's such an easy habit to get into, though, isn't it? You know, it's a laziness, but it's so easy to get into it. It's almost like a comfort zone. Yeah. You're not challenging yourself. You're not doing anything out of the ordinary. So it's almost like, you know, that'll do. I'm comfortable. You know, it's a routine. It's a dangerous trap. Don't take this the wrong way, but you're a 70-year-old inner-city white man, you know, probably not the sort of person that people would assume meditates either. Yeah, I don't know. I never really thought about the type of person that meditates. You're stereotyping now. Absolutely. But, yeah, I really like that about you, full of surprises. Oh, good. I hope so. It was good chatting to you. (laughs) I feel inspired. (laughs) I hope so. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, James. Bye. See you. Love you. Love you too. Bye. This podcast was created by me, Kai Noonan. Audio production by Harry Hughes. Script editing and advising by Adam Hughes. Check us out on Instagram. Just search Towards Connection.